Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Remember that last week I pulled the top off this stand and I tried to pick it up. Remind us, don't pick up on it. It'll fall apart. Really a step away, but get too old to see that part. Um, well, it's good to be with you all today. Um, today, here's what we're up to. We're wrapping up our series, Stories We Tell, which has been our summer series this year. And I'm actually going to start us off with a question. And the question is this. What is the worst part of every fairy tale? Do you, have, you know the answer. What is it? The end. What? Do you say the end? Why? <laughs> it's the end. For me, for me, it's that they, ha- they live happily ever after. Right? And they lived happily ever after. Doesn't this make you want to throw up? <laughs> Our teenage protagonists, like they're always teenagers, they survive all sorts of trauma, like evil stepmothers or like talking animals or curses, and almost always at least one murder in the story. And then they just they just get married, right? And then they they are just happy, and that's it. Nobody ever goes to counseling in these stories. Like, nobody ever reenacts the bad parenting that they received from the witch pretending to be their mother and then like pass that bad parenting on to their own kids. Like backwoods hill people who have never met anybody are just suddenly great leaders. Like, right? It's all ridiculous. And like kids don't care about any of this, of course, but now that I'm an adult, what I want, right, is I want the story that comes after the miracle. I want to know how it is that they live. And you might not agree with me about this, but your laughter suggests that you kind of agree with me. Um, But if you spent more than a few months as a follower of Jesus, or if you've ever been married, I'm betting that you can relate to the frustrations with the ends of these stories. We don't get to happily ever after our most important relationships, right? Staying faithful is hard work. It can often feel like a slog, and there are lots of moments where the easiest thing in the world for us to do would be to just give up. Sometimes we fantasize about starting over. And in our earthly relationships, sometimes things really do break beyond points of repair. And what I'm hoping for a lot of Sunday mornings when I'm standing here with you, what I'm hoping for from Scripture, what I'm hoping for from my faith, from these gatherings, is at least some amount of guidance about how to keep going. Reassurance that like doing any of this stuff, doing all of this stuff, isn't for nothing. And I don't want easy platitudes, and I don't want happily ever after, because I know that these things don't bring me any actual comfort. What I want, what I want actually is hope, right? Hope in the moment, specifically when I feel the most hopeless. That's a lead into our story today, because once upon a time, we'll start that way. That was more clever in the writing than it came out this morning. Once upon a time, the people of Israel knew that they were going to need something similar, some kind of hope. After their most successful times as a nation, which we've, we've covered a little in this series under King David, and after the division of that nation um, by civil war, there are these two kingdoms and these, these threats of actual obliteration of those two kingdoms. These threats loom specifically when this mighty power rises up in the region in Babylon. Now, among the prophets at this time who are left in Jerusalem, there are many who are telling the last kings of Israel that everything is just going to be fine. 
I mean, after all, God is on our side and God loves us. Like, how bad can things possibly be? But there is one prophet at this moment in Israel's history named Jeremiah who's been shown a different story. And God tells Jeremiah that the Babylonians are not going to be resisted by the people of Israel and that their defeat is going to happen. And the kings of Judah at the time are predictably like totally uninterested in what Jeremiah has to say. But Jeremiah sends them a letter anyways. And in that letter, we get this particular passage. Jeremiah says, This is what the Lord Almighty says to all those who will be carried into exile. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And here's the verse you might recognize, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Defeat is coming. Things are going to get hard. And that's all okay. When you are captives, don't worry. Live peaceably among your captors in Babylon and be good citizens to them there. Be patient. Keep the faith. And God will be with you. And you can imagine a little asterisk there that says, not you, your grandchildren. You will live your life and die in captivity. This is all nice advice, right? But that, that little asterisk is important because the good stuff is 70 years away. The other prophets and the kings of Israel are looking for happily ever after, right? But instead, Jeremiah is saying to them, you are going to have to learn how to hold things together while you wait. With that message in tow, right, is it surprising to find out that Jeremiah ends up at the bottom of a well left to die? I would argue no, not surprising at all. And when the Babylonians do eventually come, they conquer Israel, nobody that we see anyways bothers to apologize to Jeremiah for being so mean to him or to doubting the stuff that he says. But what they do do is they preserve the letter that he wrote, right? And we get to still read it. And everything that Jeremiah predicted, of course, comes to pass. But it's worth asking, as we think about Jeremiah and in this, this long period of waiting, what happens, right? What happens during that period? It's worth wondering, do the Israelites really keep the faith? And if they do, what can we learn from them in our own seasons of waiting, our own 70 years? Our story this morning isn't actually about Jeremiah. He's just the setup. 
Actually, the setup was the fairy tale thing. Then Jeremiah. I'm gonna keep this tracking. I wish I had a whiteboard, but we had fairy tale Jeremiah. Now our actual story. It's gonna come from the book of Daniel. Now Daniel, I'm regretting teaching about today, um, because it's perhaps the most curious book in all the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever done a study on Daniel, but it's weird. Um, Daniel's also the most recent book that we have in the Old Testament. It's written hundreds of years actually after the Babylonian exile. And just a century or so before Jesus is born. And along with the book of Esther, which is a lovely little book, it is one of two stories that we have of Israelite life during the exile, during that 70 years. And this means that it's a window right into that season, that moment of time that Jeremiah is prophesying about, prophesying about, and it's being remembered by people living generations later. Now, before we get into the stuff that happens to Daniel, there's some tough things that are going to be uncomfortable that you need to know. The first is this. Daniel is a composite character. In this book, right, the character of Daniel lives through and remains impossibly young during all of the reigns of all of the major leaders of Babylon during the period of the exile, during the 70 years. He's taken to Babylon as a young man by the king Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king who destroys Jerusalem. And he serves Nebuchadnezzar in his court. And then he sees the downfall of Nebuchadnezzar and the rise of his descendants. And then Daniel, still a young man, serves a fictional ruler named Darius the Mede and then sees his downfall. And then he serves the final ruler of Babylon in this period of time, who's named Cyrus of Persia. And Cyrus is the one who ends up setting the Israelites free and sending them back to rebuild their temple and their home. So what we gather then is this, that Daniel is a singular stand-in for many faithful Israelites during this period of time. So there are many faithful Israelites in that 70 years, and we like use Daniel as a way of talking about and remembering their stories. And there are many stories in Daniel, many of which you probably know, right? In the book of Daniel, you find Daniel in the lion's den. You remember that? Um, we find Daniel's friends who survive a fiery furnace incident, which you probably remember. Daniel's the guy that interprets the writing on the wall, which gives us that saying that we still use all the time about impending doom. That's for Darius the Mede, ruler number two, if you're taking notes. That's who's about to be defeated. And depending on your background in church, you might also know that the second half of Daniel contains prophecies that some Christians believe anticipate the coming end of the world. So you'll still see Daniel um, in some churches under, under that context. But none of those, the lions, the furnace, the prophecies, none of those are our stories about Daniel for today. Today what we're doing is we're looking at the first story in Daniel where he interprets the dream of that first king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the setup. Daniel and his friends have become advisors in the Babylonian court. They have risen up in the Babylonian court because their God has demonstrated his faithfulness to them, even though, and this connects to stuff we've been saying all month, even though they are on foreign soil, right? So they're in Babylon, but God's still God because he's not grounded in the same way that the other gods, the other kingdoms are. So God has been faithful to them. And he's been giving these young men strength, wisdom, and health in exchange for their commitment to keeping kosher laws of Israel, even though they're now in a foreign country. There's a whole interesting story in chapter 1 about that. But anyways, the king sees that God blesses these guys, so he lifts them up into being like advisors in his court. Now, this is actually, as a sidebar, our first lesson about living in exile, right? And I'll put it on the, on the board behind us here. 
It's do the small things. What do you do when you're living in exile? You do the small things. Eating the right foods, which is what Daniel and his friends do, that doesn't fix anything. That doesn't fix Daniel's suffering. It doesn't overthrow the powers of Babylon. It is a small thing they do to keep the rituals of their faith, to keep the routines of their faith. What it does is it demonstrates Daniel still trusts his God even though things are going very badly. And even though undoubtedly he knows they're going to keep going badly for another 70 years, right? But even so, he does the small things. Whatever your season of waiting is this morning that you're in the middle of, you can do the same things Daniel and his friends do. Keep the little routines of your faith, even if they seem silly given what you're facing, right? Read, pray, do what you're already doing and come to church, right? Even if you don't feel like it, even if it sounds like a slog or a drag on your Sunday morning, keeping the little routines going is important. Receive communion in a little while, even if it's been a while, even if you're not sure if you're totally in the right space for it. Do it anyways. Keep the faith and keep those little routines going. That was sidebar lesson. Back to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. So what happens is one day, Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream. And in this dream, he sees a statue, right? If, if Andy is still in here, he has it tattooed on his arm, I believe, right? Boom, boom, boom. There it is. Um, so if you need pointers later for memory, check in with Andy. He'll show you his arm. All right. And in this dream, there's a statue with a head of gold and arms of silver and a torso of bronze and legs of iron feet of mixed clay, clay and iron mixed together. And in the dream, the clay down at the feet crumbles, actually it's struck by a rock, and then the whole thing crashes down. And he wants this dream interpreted, and so what he does is he calls all of his like court magicians who interpret dreams for him to come and help. But he's skeptical of these guys and the tricks that they tend to play, right? They tend to just kind of tell him what he wants to hear. So we see a tension already between Nebuchadnezzar and like the kings of Israel that Jeremiah is talking to. Like the desire of the king to hear whatever they want to hear versus hearing the hard thing. And so he's skeptical, and so he rigs this contest up for the, for the court magicians. He says to them, he brings them in, he says, if you do not tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. That's tough, right? And they don't get to opt in to this contest. This is just happening. So to prove that they really do have these mystical powers, what they have to do, Nebuchadnezzar insists that they already know the dream that he had. And this, of course, is terrifying to them. And so they do the reasonable thing. They tell the king that what he's asking for is impossible, and they beg for their lives. But this makes Nebuchadnezzar furious. And so he commands, and it gets worse for them, he commands not only that they should be immediately killed, but in fact, every advisor in all of the court should be killed, even the ones who didn't call in and who have no idea what's going on, right? And in the story, that group includes Daniel and his friends, who are not around, but suddenly they find out they're about to die because of something these other guys did. Until so all of the advisors and magicians are led to the gallows, and Daniel like talks to the executioner like, right before they're going to be executed, and he like strikes a deal, which is impressive. And what happens is he says... Okay, if I can tell the king his dream and do the interpretation, then everybody gets to live. That's the deal. I can do it. 
And the executioner, knowing the king wants the dream interpreted, he agrees, and so he says, that's fine. But it is important to know that Daniel is completely bluffing at this part of the story. He has no idea what the dream is. And so as soon as he works this deal with the executioner, he goes to his friends and he says, like, while I'm walking, please pray for God to show me what the dream is and its interpretation. And so they do that, and then God reveals everything to him as he's, like, in transit, which is stressful. Um, and when Daniel gets there to Nebuchadnezzar, the king asks him this. He says, are you able to tell me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show to the king the mystery that the king is asking. It's impossible. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. So, an important thing, right? Daniel's first move is to refocus the credit for what is about to happen, right? He tells Nebuchadnezzar that what he's asking is impossible for anyone, even for him, Israelite or not. But he says there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and that God is the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar his dream in the first place. Which leads us to our second point, which is another strange one. According to the book of Daniel, God talks to other people. Now that might not strike you as a big deal, but think about it for a minute. God talks to other people, and not just anybody, right? God talks to Israel's enemy. And not just any enemy, right? God talks to the same king that just destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. The biggest of Israel's enemies. And still, it's to him, to this enemy, that God reveals the future. And so we can pause long enough in the story to ask ourselves, especially as we consider that context of a story being preserved by the Israelites hundreds of years after the exile has ended, what are they wanting to remember about their history and that experience? They want to remember this picture of who their God really is. They want to remember this aspect of their God's character. That their God isn't just a God who holds, who like grows in his fury for 70 years and then just wipes Babylon off the face of the map. He's a God who even in the midst of their exile and suffering speaks and speaks to those enemies and reveals the future to those people. That tells us something about the character of the God that we serve and particularly about the way that character has been remembered by our ancestors in the faith. We're going to go back to the story. We're going to come back to some of these things in a bit. So in the story, Daniel tells the king about the statue in his dream. And then he offers this interpretation. He says, you, O king, you are the head of gold. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Just as iron crushes and smashes everything, it shall crush and shatter all these and as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the strength of iron shall be in it, as you saw the iron mixed with the clay. And as the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with clay, so will they mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. 
shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So what God reveals to Nebuchadnezzar is that his reign is temporary and that the kingdoms that follow the kingdom of Babylon are going to be increasingly militant. And then in the end, God is going to establish another kind of kingdom that is not made from metals, right, but from earth. It's a clod of dirt that strikes the clay and crumbles the whole thing and then grows into a mountain. So his last kingdom is made not of metal, it's made of the least precious thing, of dirt. And yet it's going to rise like a mountain and it's going to last forever. Okay, this is a weird sermon. There are a lot of things I regret about how this week played out. <laughs> a lot gets made of this prophecy. You may have heard it before. And I don't want this prophecy to be a distraction as we head into these last few minutes. So I'm going to share what, what seems to be the most reasonable view that I've found. So the most reasonable view of this prophecy that I've found is this. The stories of Daniel emerge in Jewish literature in the second century BCE. And by that point, right, Babylon, the gold head of the statue, has fallen to the Medeans. Remember Darius the Mede, the writing on the wall guy? And then after Darius comes the Persians. That's Cyrus, the guy that eventually lets the Israelites free. And then after the Persians, all of this stuff is conquered by the Greeks. Think Alexander the Great. Here's the iron. And then after Alexander, the next rulers in line are a combo of the Seleucids of Syria and the Ptolemies of Egypt. You don't need to remember that, it's not on quiz. But what you need to know is that those two co-rulers of the region are weakened. Historically, we would consent that they were weakened specifically through intermarriage, and so there's probably your iron mixed with clay. And then, after all of this, at the time that these stories are being recorded, there's a successful revolt in Judea, Right? That's the Maccabean Revolt, which we don't talk about a lot, but it happens, and it leads to an extended period of like independence for the, Judea, for the Jewish people in Palestine for a specific amount of time. So you will sometimes run into folks who see this prophecy as a prophecy that continues on into our own day, and they'll try to see like the iron and the iron mixed with clay and things in kingdoms or powers of our own time. And see this prophecy is still unfulfilled. I'm not going to argue about that. I know that's like a pretty contentious thing for a lot of people. So I'm just going to acknowledge that that's true. But I will say this, that that is not how the readers who first encountered Daniel would have seen the prophecy. What they would have seen is that for them, that dirt becomes a mountain, and that mountain certainly would be Mount Zion as they understood it, and that would have connected to their political hopes in this moment when they're experiencing a period of political independence in the region. So for them, probably feels like everything's wrapped up. If you believe that it's like continuing, that this is like, I don't know what, like the European Union or something, like you can feel that way. We can talk about it even. I don't know the answer. I'm just saying for those readers, they probably feel like it's all wrapped up. In any case, <sighs> we remain centered on the question for today, which is how to live in exile. The most important lessons have much more to do with how Daniel and God treat the king. It is a surprising thing for Israel's conquerors to become the gold head at the top of the statue. It is surprising for Daniel 
a captive of Babylon, taken prisoner from his own home, to seek to help his captor. It is perhaps most surprising for Daniel and his friends to come to the rescue of the court magicians in this story who are all set to be executed and who Nebuchadnezzar has already exposed as like charlatans and a fraud, right? And yet, it is this moment in the history and story of the exile that the Israelites are choosing for hundreds of years and even all the way into the present to keep alive. This moment that they want to remember. And I think the reason is, is because in this moment, we see that even in a time of hardship, the Israelite people are proud of their ancestors who lived lovingly and humbly and generously towards others, towards outsiders. That dirt clod, right, that topples the statue isn't really something that they're that worried about. That's going to happen sometime in the future. God's going to do the stuff that God wants to do in the moments when God wants to do it. That's not the focus of their memory. Their concern is treating others with the same curious attention and empathy that God treats them with. That's what they keep seeing in their God and what they want to remember and carry on themselves. God sees our enemies, even our most brutal enemies, he sees them with empathy and grace. So we ought to do the same. God is the one who shows Nebuchadnezzar a vision of Babylon as the golden era in that region, which is a crazy thing for God to show this guy. Daniel might not feel the same way about this kingdom. He might not feel the same way about it specifically when he was minutes away from being beheaded by this kingdom when all this started. But Daniel chooses in the story to echo God's treatment of Nebuchadnezzar anyway. That's a complicated sentence and repeat it because it's important. Daniel chooses to echo God's treatment of his enemy. So what happens next in the story? The story says that King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and he worshipped Daniel and commanded that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a, re a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So the king mistakenly bows to Daniel, but both Daniel and the story keepers here know that what matters is that the king here understands he's not God. Even in a foreign land, even on foreign soil, even over a foreign king, God has authority. God is God everywhere. And if that's true, if God is God everywhere, then how should exiles live? The stories of Daniel teach us four lessons. Number one, we do the small stuff, even when it feels silly. Number two, we remember God's heart for others. It's not all about us. Number three, we live with kindness towards others, even those who feel like they are a threat to us. And four, we trust God with the future. Because no matter where we are, no matter what we're facing, he still really is God. And our time is growing very short, and I want us to be able to connect and learn here. And I picked this story this morning because I think it's fair to say that we are decidedly not living out a happily ever after at the moment. There are a lot of things to be worried about in your lives and our world right now. 
There are lots of dangers. It's no secret that many of us are struggling to find hope these days. And because of this, I think that we're often tempted to turn to things like anger, right? Where we try to take things into our own hands that shouldn't be in our hands. Or fear, where we just resign ourselves to suffering. Or isolation, right? Where we close ranks and focus only on ourselves or on our loved ones. And we wonder how long we're going to have to endure in this season. And these reactions are true, whether our exile is as big as our place in our culture, right? Or as small as an intimate relationship that you have or a friendship. And without hope in these relationships or in this culture, we're going to sink into those three things. Sink into anger and fear and isolation. But are those really those ways, fear, anger, isolation, are those really the best ways to live out this middle part of our story? They might help us save ourselves in a particular moment, but if we really chase down what we at least hope to be true about God, that those things, like going through the times of suffering with anger and fear and isolation as your strategies, do those things sound like God? Do they sound like him or his people or our memories of his people? Is God's vision ever so fearful and small? Or do we see in these ancient stories a picture of a God whose interests are so much bigger than the people that he has chosen ever seem to be able to imagine? He works hope out of seasons of exile. He humbles kings who have defeated his people. He leaves those same conquerors in awe of him. He builds lasting kingdoms out of dirt. When we think about discipleship, which is what we're doing this year, about learning to follow after the way of Jesus, when we think about that thing, discipleship, as just this like stopgap solution for how we're supposed to get by in this time between the moment when we came to faith and the moment when we die and and go to heaven, like when we think about discipleship as just this like way to get through. Like, we are selling what it could be so, so short. Discipleship is supposed to be the way we become kingdom people now, right? It's a way to live like heaven on earth. We don't love our neighbors, right, because we don't love our neighbors because it makes life easier for us, right? We don't love our neighbors because it's nice and we want to feel like nice people. We love them because we see in them what they might struggle to see in themselves, which is that they are God's beloved. That's a thing that we have the ability to see and to trust and to know and to believe. And we can treat people like God treats them so that they can see how God treats them and believe it themselves. We forgive people who have hurt us. We are not paying some sort of like holy tax to make God happier to be obedient to his, his rules, what we're doing is we are recognizing, living out in our lives and in our treatment of somebody else something we believe, which is that God's not finished with anybody. I can forgive you because you're still changing. Something's still changing in you. And when I read the Bible or when I pray, I shouldn't be doing that out of obligation, which is how I often do. I should be doing it because I believe and have experienced that God's heart is worth my curiosity. And it's worth my attention. 
Now, I'm not perfect in any of these things, loving my neighbors and forgiving people and, and even keeping the simple disciplines of my faith. But I come here each week because I want to be reminded and encouraged in this season of waiting and hardship that I'm living in and you're living in, that these values are worth holding on to. And when we gather here together, the thing we missed when we were apart for a year and a half, right? We gather here together, we see inescapably that we're not alone in our curiosity and interest in any of these things. And when we're honest about our weaknesses with each other and our failures and our embarrassments, what we get when we do that together is we get this moment where we can taste what it means to really love and be loved and to accept and be accepted. And when we do these things, when we gather and see that we're not alone and confess all of our failures and our mess, and then at the end of that, we sing, and we sing anyway, when we receive communion anyway, we are getting to experience for at least just a few moments in our week that at least the beginnings of the kingdom of God are being built here now. And it is a beautiful thing, I think, for us to wait well together, to grow in our trust together, and to be small characters in a story that's worth caring about and continuing to 